Chapter 7 of Tarzan and the Ant-Men. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Matthew Reese, Cordova, Illinois. Tarzan and the Ant-Men by Edgar Rice Burroughs. Chapter 7. The Alalus youth, son of the first woman, ranged the forest in search of the ape-man, the only creature that ever had stirred within his savage, primitive breast any emotion even slightly akin to affection. But he did not find him. Instead, he fell in with two older males of his own species, and these three hunted together, as was occasionally the custom of these inoffensive creatures. His new acquaintances showed little interest in his strange armament. They were quite content with a stick and a stone knife. To the former an occasional rodent fell, and the latter discovered many a luscious grub and insect beneath the mold that floored the forest or hidden under the bark of a tree. For the most part, however, they fed upon fruits, nuts, and tubers. Not so the son of the first woman, however. He brought in many birds and an occasional antelope, for he was becoming daily more proficient with the bow and the spear, and as he often brought in more than he could eat and left the remainder to his two fellows, they were permanently attached to him or at least until such time as some fearsome woman should appear upon the scene to shatter their idyllic existence and drag one of them away to her corral. They wondered a little at him in their slow and stupid minds, for he seemed to differ in some vague, intangible way from them and all others of their sex that they had known. He held his chin higher, for one thing, and his gaze was far less shifty and apologetic. He strode with a firmer step and with less caution— but perhaps they smiled inwardly as they cogitated muddily upon that inevitable moment that would discover one of their coarse, brutal, hairy shes felling him with her bludgeon and dragging him off toward the caves by the hair of his head. And then one day the thing happened, or at least a part of it happened. They met a huge she suddenly in an open place in the forest. The two who accompanied the son of the first woman turned in flight, but when they had reached the vantage ground of close-growing timber, they paused and looked back to see if the woman was pursuing them, and what had become of their companion. To their relief, they saw that the woman was not following them, and to their consternation that their fellow had not fled, but was facing her defiantly, and motioning her to go away or be killed. Such crass stupidity! He must have been whelped without brains. It never occurred to them to attribute his act to courage. Courage was for the she's, the male spent his life in fleeing danger and the female of his species. But they were grateful to him, for his rash act would save them, since the she would take but one of them, and that one would be he who thus foolishly remained behind to defy her. The woman, unaccustomed to having her rights challenged by mere man, was filled with surprise and righteous anger. Her surprise brought her to a sudden halt twenty paces from the man, and her anger caused her to reach for one of the stone missiles hanging at her girdle. That was her undoing. The son of the first woman, standing before her with an arrow already fitted to his bow, waited not to discover her further intentions, but even as the woman's fingers loosed the feathered messenger of defeat from the leather thong of her girdle, he drew the shaft to his cheek and released it. His two companions, watching from the seclusion of the wood, saw the woman stiffen, her face contorted in a spasm of pain, they saw her clutch frantically at a feathered shaft protruding from her chest, sink to her knees, and then sprawl to the earth, 
where she lay kicking with her feet and clutching with her fingers for a brief moment before she relapsed into eternal quiet. Then they emerged from their concealment, and as the son of the first woman approached his victim and wrenched the arrow from her heart, they joined him, half stunned as they were by surprise, and gazed first at the corpse of the she with expressions of incredulity, and then at him with what was close akin to awe and reverence. They examined his bow and arrows, and again and again they returned to the wound in the woman's chest. It was all quite too amazing. And the son of the first woman, he held his head high and his chest out and strutted proudly. Never before had he or any other man been cast in the role of hero, and he enjoyed it. But he would impress them further. Seizing the corpse of the woman, he dragged it to a nearby tree where he propped it in a sitting posture against the bowl. Then he walked away some twenty feet and, signing his fellows to observe him closely, he raised his heavy spear and hurled it at his realistic target, through which it passed to embed itself in the tree behind. The others were greatly excited. One of them wanted to attempt this wondrous feat, and when he had thrown and missed, his fellow insisted upon having a turn. Later, they craved practice with the bow and arrow. For hours the three remained before their grisly target, nor did they desist until hunger prompted them to move on, and the son of the first woman had promised to show them how to fashion weapons similar to his own, a momentous occurrence in the history of the Alali, though these three sensed it as little as did the hundreds of Alalis women repairing to their caves that night in blissful ignorance of the blow that had been struck at their supremacy by the militant suffragists of Minuni. And, as suddenly, with more immediate results, the even tenor of Tarzan's existence in the city of Trohana Dalmachus was altered and a series of events initiated that were to lead to the maddest and most unbelievable denouement. The ape-man lay upon a bed of grasses beneath a great tree that grew beside the city of King Adendrohakis. Dawn was flushing the sky above the forest to the east of Trohana Dalmachus, when Tarzan, his ear close to the ground, was suddenly awakened by a strange reverberation that seemed to come faintly from the bowels of the earth. It was such a dim and distant sound that it would scarce have been appreciable to you or to me had we placed an ear flat against the ground after having been told that the noise existed. But to Tarzan it was an interruption of the ordinary noises of the night, and, therefore, however slight, of sufficient import to impinge upon his consciousness even in sleep. Awakened, he still lay listening intently. He knew that the sound did not come from the bowels of the earth, but from the surface, and he guessed that it originated at no great distance, and also he knew that it was coming closer rapidly. For just a moment it puzzled him, and then a great light dawned upon him, and he sprang to his feet. The dome of the king Adendrohakis lay a hundred yards away, and toward it he bent his steps. Just before the south entrance he was challenged by a tiny sentinel. Take word to your king, the ape-man directed him, that Tarzan hears many diadets galloping toward Trohanadalmachus, and that, unless he is much mistaken, each carries a hostile warrior upon its back. The sentinel turned and hallooed down the corridor, leading from the entrance. And a moment later an officer and several other warriors appeared. At sight of Tarzan they halted. What is wrong? demanded the officer. The king's guest says that he heard many diadets approaching replied the sentinel. "'From what direction?' demanded the officer, addressing Tarzan. "'From that direction the sounds appeared to come,' replied the ape-man, pointing toward the west. "'The Veltopismacusians!' exclaimed the officer. 
and then turning to those who had accompanied him from the interior of the king's dome quick arouse trohenna delmachus i will warn the king's dome and the king and he wheeled and ran quickly within while the others sped away to awaken the city in an incredibly short space of time tarzan saw thousands of warriors streaming from each of the ten domes from the north and the south doors of each dome rode mounted men and from the east and west marched the foot soldiers there was no confusion everything moved with military precision and evidently in accordance with a plan of defense in which each unit had been thoroughly drilled small detachments of cavalry galloped quickly to the four points of the compass these were scouts each detail of which spread fanwise just beyond the limits of the domes until the city was encircled by a thin line of mounted men that would halt when it had reached a predetermined distance from the city and fall back with information before an advancing enemy following these stronger detachments of mounted men moved out to north and south and east and west to take positions just inside the line of scouts these detachments were strong enough to engage the enemy and impede his progress as they fell back upon the main body of the cavalry which might by this plan be summoned in time to the point at which the enemy was making his boldest effort to reach the city and then the main body of the cavalry moved out and in this instance toward the west from which point they were already assured the foe was approaching while the infantry which had not paused since it emerged from the domes marched likewise toward the four points of the compass in four compact bodies of which by far the largest moved toward the west the advance foot troops took their stations but a short distance outside the city while within the area of the domes the last troops to emerge from them both cavalry and infantry remained evidently as a reserve force and it was with these troops that adendrohacus took his post that he might be centrally located for the purpose of directing the defense of his city to better advantage Komoda Florenzal, the prince, had gone out in command of the main body of cavalry that was to make the first determined stand against the oncoming foe. This body consisted of 7,500 men, and its position lay two miles outside the city, half a mile behind a cavalry patrol of 500 men, of which there were four, one at each point of the compass, and totaling 2,000 men. The balance of the 10,000 advanced troops consisted of the 500 mounted scouts, or vedettes, who in turn were half a mile in advance of the picket patrols, at two hundred foot intervals, entirely surrounding the city at a distance of three miles. Inside the city, fifteen thousand mounted men were held in reserve. In the increasing light of dawn, Tarzan watched these methodical preparations for defense with growing admiration for the tiny Manunians. There was no shouting and no singing, but on the face of every warrior who passed close enough for the ape-man to discern his features was an expression of exalted rapture no need here for war-cries or battle-hymns to bolster the questionable courage of the weak there were no weak the pounding of the hoofs of the advancing veltopismacusian horde had ceased it was evident that their scouts had discovered that the intended surprise had failed were they altering the plan or point of attack or had they merely halted the main body temporarily to await the result of a reconnaissance tarzan asked a nearby officer if perchance the enemy had abandoned his intention of attacking at all the man smiled and shook his head. Menunians never abandon an attack, he said. As Tarzan's eyes wandered over the city's ten domes, illuminated now by the rays of the rising sun, he saw in each of the numerous window embrasures that pierced the domes at regular intervals at each of their thirty-odd floors, a warrior stationed at whose side lay a great bundle of short javelins, while just to his rear was piled a quantity of small round stones. The ape-man smiled they overlook no possible contingency he thought 
But the quarry slaves, what of them? Would they not turn against their masters at the first opportunity for escape that an impending battle such as this would be almost certain to present to them? He turned again to the officer and put the question to him. The latter turned and pointed toward the entrance to the nearest quarry, where Tarzan saw hundreds of white-tunicked slaves piling rocks upon it, while a detachment of infantry leaned idly upon their spears as their officers directed the labor of the slaves. "'There is another detachment of warriors bottled up inside the quarry entrance,' explained the officer to Tarzan. "'If the enemy gains the city and this outer guard is driven into the domes or killed or captured, the inner guard can hold off an entire army.' as only one man can attack them at a time. Our slaves are safe, therefore, unless the city falls, and that has not happened to any Manunian city within the memory of man. The best that the Veltopismacusians can hope for, now, is to pick up a few prisoners, but they will doubtless leave behind as many as they take. Had their surprise been successful, they might have forced their way into one of the domes and made way with many women and much loot. Now, though, our forces are too well disposed to make it possible for any but a greatly superior force to seriously threaten the city itself. I even doubt if our infantry is engaged at all. How is the infantry disposed? asked Tarzan. Five thousand men are stationed within the windows of the domes, replied the officer. Five thousand more comprise the reserve which you see about you, and from which detachments have been detailed to guard the quarries. A mile from the city are four other bodies of infantry, those to the east, north, and south having a strength of 1,000 men each, while the one to the west, facing the probable point of attack, consists of 7,000 warriors. "'Then you think the fighting will not reach the city?' asked Tarzan. "'No. The lucky men today are in the advanced cavalry. They will get whatever fighting there is. I doubt if an infantryman draws a sword or casts a spear. But that is usually the case. It is the cavalry that fights, always.' I take it that you feel unfortunate in not being attached to a cavalry unit. Could you not be transferred? Oh, we must all take our turns of duty in each branch, explained the officer. We are all mounted except for the defense of the city, and for that purpose we are assigned to the foot troops for four moons, followed by five moons in the cavalry. The word he used was diet attacks. Five thousand men being transferred from one to the other the night of each new moon. Tarzan turned and looked out across the plain toward the west. He could see the nearer troops standing at ease, awaiting the enemy. Even the main body of cavalry two miles away he could discern, because there were so many of them. But the distant pickets and vedettes were invisible. As he stood leaning upon his spear watching this scene, a scene such as no other man of his race ever had witnessed, and realized the seriousness of these little men in the business of war that confronted them, he could not but think of the people of his own world, lining up their soldiers for purposes usually far less momentous to them than the call to arms that had brought the tough little warriors of Adendrohakis swarming from their pallets in the defense of home and city. No chicanery of politics here, no thinly-veiled ambition of some potential tyrant, no mad conception of harebrained dreamers seized by the avaricious criminal for self-aggrandizement and riches. None of these, but patriotism of purest strain, energized by the powerful urge of self-preservation. The perfect fighters, the perfect warriors, the perfect heroes, these. No need for blaring trumpets, of no use to them the artificial aids to courage conceived by captains of the outer world, who send unwilling men to battle for they know not what, deceived by lying propaganda, enraged by false tales of the barbarity of the foe, whose anger has been aroused against them by similar means." 
During the lull that followed the departure from the city of the last of the advanced troops, Tarzan approached Adendorhakis, where he sat astride his diadet, surrounded by a number of his high officers. The king was resplendent in golden jerkin, a leathern garment upon which small discs of gold were sewn, overlapping one another. About his waist was a wide belt of heavy leather, held in place by three buckles of gold, and of such dimensions as to have almost the appearance of a corset. This belt supported his rapier and knife, the scabbards of which were heavily inlaid with gold and baser metals in intricate and beautiful designs. Leather quisses protected his upper legs, in front, covering the thighs to the knees, while his forearms were encased in metal armlets from wrists almost to elbows. Upon his feet were strapped tough sandals with a circular golden plate protecting each ankle bone. A well-shaped leather cask fitted his head closely. As Tarzan stopped before him, the king recognized the ape-man with a pleasant greeting. The captain of the guard reports that it is to you we owe the first warning of the coming of the Veltopismacusians. Once again, you have placed the people of Trohanodalmachus under deep obligations. However are we to repay our debt? Tarzan gestured deprecatively. You owe me nothing, king of Trohanodalmachus, he replied. Give me your friendship, and tell me that I may go forward and join your noble son, the prince. Then all the obligations shall be upon my head. Until the worms of death devour me, I shall be your friend always, Tarzan, returned the king graciously. Go where you will, and that you choose to go where there should be fighting surprises me not. It was the first time that any Manunian had addressed him by his name. Always had he been called Savior of the Prince, Guest of the King, Giant of the Forest, and by other similar impersonal appellations. Among the Manunians, a man's name is considered a sacred possession, the use of which is permitted only his chosen friends and the members of his family, and to be called Tarzan by a Dendrohacus was equivalent to an invitation or a command to the closest personal friendship with the king. The ape-man acknowledged the courtesy with a bow. The friendship of a Dendrohacus is a sacred honor, ennobling those who wear it. I shall guard it always with my life, as my most treasured possession, he said in a low voice, nor was the lord of the jungle moved by any maudlin sentimentality as he addressed the king. For these little people he had long since acknowledged to himself a keen admiration, and for the personal character of Edendrohakis he had come to have the most profound respect. Never since he had learned their language had he ceased his inquiries concerning the manners and the customs of these people, and he had found the personality of Edendrohakis so inextricably interwoven with the lives of his subjects that in receiving the answers to his questions he could not but absorb the unquestionable evidence of the glories of the king's character. Edendrohakis seemed pleased with his words, which he acknowledged graciously, and then the ape-man withdrew and started toward the front. On the way he tore a leafy branch from a tree that grew beside his path, for the thought had occurred to him that such a weapon might be useful against Manunians, and he knew not what the day might hold. He had just passed the advanced infantry when a courier sped by him on a mad race toward the city. Tarzan strained his eyes ahead, but he could see no sign of battle, and when he reached the main cavalry advance, there was still no indication of an enemy as far ahead as he could see. Prince Komodo Florensal greeted him warmly, and looked a little wonderingly, perhaps, at the leafy branch he carried across one shoulder. "'What news?' asked Tarzan. "'I have just sent a messenger to the king,' replied the prince, "'reporting that our scouts have come in touch with those of the enemy, who are, as we thought, the Veltopismacusians. 
a strong patrol from the outpost in our front pushed through the enemy's scout line, and one courageous warrior even managed to penetrate as far as the summit of the hill of Gartolas, from which he saw the entire main body of the enemy forming for attack. He says there are between twenty and thirty thousand of them. As Komodo Florentall ceased speaking, a wave of sound came rolling toward them from the west. They are coming, announced the prince. End of chapter 7. Recording by Matthew Reese, Cordova, Illinois.